Hello, everyone. This is Art Tomasetti, and thank you for listening to the April edition of our podcast. So much has changed in the past month. So let me first start by saying I hope each of you is well and finding ways to be resilient in these difficult times. Please take care of yourselves, take care of your family, friends, teams, communities. We need to let this moment define us, not defeat us. And it's inevitable that this situation will introduce new safety challenges. So we must continue to do the things we know are successful. Analyze, learn, adapt, mitigate, and protect. As always, we welcome your feedback on the podcast, and we're very much interested in what you would like to hear about. You can provide comments via your podcast download site or email us at FTSC, Foxtot Tango Sierra Charlie, at flighttestsafety.org. And if you like what you hear, please feel free to share it with others that you think would benefit. For this month's focus topic, I have two excerpts from interviews that were done as part of the SCTP Foundation's oral history program. You can find the link to the complete video interviews, biographies, and transcripts in the podcast description or go to www.setp.org and click on Foundation at the top of the page and select Oral Histories from the pull-down menu. The first is from Colonel Harry Andonian, U.S. Air Force retired, who began his flight test career in 1950 and served as Chief of Special Projects Operations Branch U-2 Flight Test from January 1959 to June of 1966. In this segment, Colonel Andonian talks about meeting challenges during his time flying the U-2 aircraft. General, but he advised that I'd be getting on the U-2 program. I had no clue as to what a U-2 was. I think I saw some kind of a hazy picture in Aviation Week. Uh, but looking back on it, I think it was an experience that uh, um, U-2 was the most challenging airplane probably that I've ever flown, and particularly on uh, landing. But there was more to it, uh, the pressure suit, uh, the high altitudes, and the length of the flights that we flew, the missions, and uh, it was a whole different world. And flying it, I was just telling Joe Guthrie here earlier that uh, if you could land it properly, there was not an airplane out there that you couldn't land uh, better. Uh, than most people. We had a, a weather package on our U-2. And while we were there, uh, uh, a hurricane was forming off the coast of uh, the east coast of America. The hurricane people had their airplanes down for maintenance. It was kind of post-season. And uh, could we go out there and take a look at that and track it and advise the weather people which way it was going? And my weather people said, man, let's do that. Let's get out there and have a look at that. And not only that, while you're there, uh, fly down into the eye and, and take every 2,000 feet, level out, take some readings, and go on all the way down to 1,000 feet above the water and then come back up. Yeah, okay, we'll look at that. So I went out and uh, I found the storm, and tops were somewhere around 48,000 feet or so. And the eye was sort of an oblong thing. It wasn't a real tight circle. And I thought, well, yeah, I think I can get in that thing and fly it on down. And I did. And when I got down near the surface, the water was like glass down there. But looking at the edge of the, uh, the eye, the water was like maybe 50 feet high and just frothing. You know, it looked real wild. Then I thought, gee, Harry, if you bail out of this thing, I'd have to bail out. 
and you're on that one-man dinghy uh, trying to survive and paddling like hell to stay within the eye, you know, to keep away from those 50-foot waves. And then I climbed up incrementally uh, a couple thousand feet um, and take readings all the way up to the top. And then I tracked that for about three and a half hours and then came back to Massachusetts. That storm, Betsy or Becky, I think it was, it, it eventually hit the North Carolina coast. But it was a late season one and it wasn't all that intense. And, uh, uh, but the weather people had data that they uh, were more than a year just re reducing the data on it. Another time, flying out of Edwards, I was on a test mission uh, checking the engine. And I flew up the Owens Valley toward Bishop, California. And we were checking it for a fuel control change. And um, at 57,000 feet, the fuel control gave out. So at the same time, the oil pressure went to zero on the engine. So I, had no, I couldn't restart the engine anyway, but it failed. And now I'm, I'm up near Bishop, California, quite a ways from uh, Edwards. So I shut everything down and came back up with my radio and called a uh, flight test and told them what the situation was. Well, are you going to have to sit down out there? Are you going to bail out? What are you going to do? Uh, well, let me see if I can get back toward the lake bed. So I headed back down and the, if you're familiar with the uh, mountain waves, you know, that occur, uh, particularly along the Sierra Nevada. I found that I get on a mountain wave at about 50,000 feet, and I rode that thing like a cushion all the way back toward Edwards, and uh, like a glider. Fortunately, I had some glider time, so I knew about that. When I got back over Edwards, I'm still about 30,000 feet, so I had lots of altitude. And then I had to land on the lake bed because uh, the wind was kind of strong to land on the runway. And when I did, my boss, then Clayton Peterson, uh, greeted me and he said, what kind of an emergency was that? He said, where have you been? <laughs> um, but we got that down safely. And the other ones, uh, the SAC people had been doing it, but uh, I think crossing the ocean with a single engine airplane uh, I made several trips to Hawaii with it. Uh, that's always a challenge, you know, because you do your own navigation. And uh, that wasn't too much of a problem because at high altitude uh, that we were flying, and I think one of the questions was how high do we fly? We'd start around uh, 60 some odd thousand feet and then cruise climb and end up a little over 70,000 feet. And the winds up there are very light. Uh, normally, and so you can fly uh, the, the same uh, flight card every time and get there right on the button. We flew at night uh, most of the time so we could take readings off the stars with our celestial navigation, but you never really needed it. If you took off at a certain time and your card said uh, such and such a star ought to be there, when you look at it, this, this angle, they're always there, and it worked fine. Was uh, it an exhausting plane to fly? Unforgiving? Unforgiving is a good word. Uh, but if you knew uh, the, the way the airplane operated, uh, it took a while to get accustomed to that, of course. But flying at altitude, the airplane uh, flew at what we call a coffin corner, if you will. If you went a little bit too fast, a few knots too fast, then you got a mock buffet. And shake your airplane around a little bit. And if you slow down just a little bit from that, you were in a stall buffet. 
So there was a little corner that you got up into, and as the airplane lightened up, uh, you'd get more into that, and you had to get back down. Well, the uh, engine operated uh, at full power up there. We could pull the throttle back, and the fuel control wouldn't let the engine come back at all. We had to put some drag out to get the airplane down to a level where the RPM would come back, the thrust would come back. And so there were times at, on a particularly long mission, we put the gear down and actually put the speed brakes out uh, to help to keep us away from that corner as the airplane lightened. And then it was really a slow process to get from peak altitude down to a level where the rate of descent could increase and come on down. I'm talking like maybe 20,000 feet or so before you finally got backed off enough to come down at a little more rapid pace. It took some time to get down. Uh, short of cutting the engine off completely, which would be uh, create more problems than you'd want to uh, uh, face, uh, it, was, it was a process just to get down from altitude. And landing the airplane, uh, if you didn't get it right down to like uh, two or three knots above the stall, it wouldn't land. It would just keep on floating down the runway. We later uh, added a parachute, a little drag chute back there, so that in your flare you could pop that chute and it would help you <laughs> land the airplane. Uh, you could obviously land without it, but it took a little bit of uh, technique to do that properly. That and uh, we have to deal with the winds like any airplane and the crosswind could be uh, kind of disastrous if you didn't uh, do it properly. Uh, the uh, airplane, as you know, had a bicycle gear, main gear and a tailwheel. And if you didn't have, uh, uh, have the airplane properly lined up to land, uh, you could just run off the runway with it. Uh, and there were times we just couldn't take that runway particularly. We'd have to land on some other runway. At Edwards, it wasn't a problem. We had a lake bed out here to land on. So um, sometimes you just have to wait for the conditions to righten uh, for you before you came in. The stall speed was very critical. Uh, anyway, and if you tried to go around with the airplane, you know, and you didn't like your landing approach, or for some reason you were bouncing along, and you feed the throttle to it, uh, from the intake back to the engine was a long way, so the engine didn't respond real quickly. And so you had to be very patient for it before it, uh, it came in to where you could affect a uh, safe go around. It was very challenging. Uh, people that just had a few rides in it uh, didn't like it at all. They, they wanted to get away from it. <laughs> uh, but once you learn how to really fly it properly, it was kind of a rewarding experience. Just as when you got down, say, well, I got down okay. And one more from NASA astronaut Buzz Aldrin, the second man to walk on the moon during NASA's Apollo 11's historic mission to the moon. In this segment, he talks about dealing with unknowns and how he and Neil Armstrong approached those first minutes on the lunar surface. So I think the pre-flight decisions were, were wise uh, in many respects. We also decided that uh, the first moments after touchdown on the, on the moon, we would concentrate on being ready to depart if there was something wrong. There are several discrete times in the first minute or two or three minutes after you touch down 
when if something is wrong and something is leaking, um, you can lift off and still rendezvous and catch up to the other spacecraft before he gets too far around the moon. So we could still catch Mike Collins if we needed to. Uh, so the first couple of minutes after the rather nail-biting, <laughs> if you could bite your nails through the gloves, um, final approach where Neil took over and, uh, and moved, moved us over the, uh, the rocks and the craters to a smoother spot while we uh, landed long and uh, with only about 15 seconds of fuel when we finally touched down. Uh, but then shortly after we touched down, uh, we made that rather famous transmission Neil did, Houston Tranquility Base, the Eagle has landed. I, I thought that that was interrupting these very intense couple of minutes watching things to see if we had to, to leave. Uh, once it looked like it was okay to stay on the surface, we also instituted uh, another procedure that I thought was very useful, and that is since it had been four or five days since we had gone through uh, the specific training for lifting off from the surface of the moon and thinking about the subsequent rendezvous, that it would be a good idea uh, those first two hours as Mike Collins was coming around the moon again to act as if we were going to abort and actually lift off at the end of that two hours. So we went through the normal procedure of countdown. Um, and of course, we, when we got down to the liftoff, we didn't uh, uh, engage the computer and didn't lift off. Uh, we then proceeded to get ready to do the surface. Uh. I hope you enjoyed those. And if you listen to these from the safety perspective, I'm sure that there are many great topics for discussion. Planning, preparation, hazard analysis, risk mitigation, all great topics. But I also think you have to come away with a sense that human beings, as individuals and working together, can do amazing things when faced with the difficult, the dangerous, and the unknown. The April issue of the Flight Test Safety Fact is on the street. This month in the Chairman's Corner, Tom Huff will discuss the postponement of the North American workshop and some options the committee is looking at to provide something virtual maybe in its place this year. You will also find a rather lengthy discussion on a topic that is woven into the fabric of almost everything in this modern age, big data. We collect more data. Our computers can process more data. There is more data. So what? That's the question we try to answer in this month's edition. If you've not currently received the Flight Test Safety Fact, you can find it on the Flight Test Safety website, www.flighttestsafety.org, and just click on News at the top of the webpage. So regarding upcoming events, with things changing so rapidly, I would ask that if you have a question about an upcoming event, that you check with the organization's website or contact them directly. I can tell you for the North American Flight Test Safety Workshop that was planned for this May in Denver, Colorado, we are planning to postpone the event until next May and keep the same venue. Also, SCTP symposia planned now through June have been canceled. But once again, please check with the sponsoring organizations for the most up-to-date info. Well, that'll wrap us up for the month of April. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Hang in there, everyone. We will get through this challenge with caring, cooperation, courage, and calm. Until next time, be safe, be smart, be ready.